just a word of introduction. Um, my name's Lloyd, and um, I'm not Preston or Alistair. I believe they're on holiday. So um, I'm stepping in for them this weekend. And I guess I should say Happy Canada Day weekend, right? Um, I can only apologize because that's kind of what Canadians do, isn't it? You kind of apologize. <laughs> I should apologize for not wearing red. Um, and also apologize, you've got a, a Scottish Chinese guy preaching today. <laughs> um, my parents are from Hong Kong. I was born in Glasgow in Scotland. And um, that's the same city where in the same year, a few years ago, it was voted the friendliest city in the UK. Also having the highest incidence of violent crime in Europe in the same year. <laughs> so you might get beaten up from where I'm from, but at least they'll be friendly to you afterwards. So it's a bit of a paradox um, in myself. It's a bit of a paradox that uh, an American is leading the service and a Brit is preaching today as well, but uh, God works in mysterious ways. Um, this morning, we're going to look at um, this passage on oaths and, uh, and truth from the Sermon on the Mount. We're continuing on that series. And uh, this teaching is given by Jesus Christ as recorded in the, in the account of his life, according to Matthew. And the Sermon on the Mount, just to give some background, more for my sake, because I'm just coming into this, right, as well as for yours. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is part uh, manifesto, part invitation, part illustration of what the kingdom of God looks like. In the previous chapter, Jesus had been preaching more generally. He said this, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That is, turn around, change course, because a new upside down but right way up kingdom and realm and reality of God is coming with the arrival of me. That's what he's saying. And so the Sermon on the Mount is a picture of how God's kingdom looks through teaching, through examples, through illustrations. So let's pray, shall we? Um, that God would um, speak to us uh, behind these words of his as we listen to these words. So why don't we have a moment to pray? Heavenly Father, thank you that you're a speaking God that you don't leave us in the dark, but that you have spoken in your word, but most importantly, in your living word, Jesus Christ to us. Would you help us by your spirit to listen to him this morning? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, Lord. Amen. So, what if I told you that you were part of a social experiment this morning? and that there were cameras in various parts of this room, which you can't quite see right now. Uh, it's to catch the reaction of uh, one of you here this morning, just one. One of you has been followed for the last 24 hours by hidden cameras and microphones attached um, strategically on your bag, in your home, and on your phone. The aim of this is a documentary researching the honesty of people in Canada for Canada Day. And so one of you is featured, one of you here today is featured in, in, in this video. And we're going to watch this video now. <laughs> nope, oh, no, it's not on. You'd be glad to hear that that's not true. <laughs> but what if it had been true? That's not a good start to a sermon on honesty, is it? Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> there might have been a few reactions from you there. The first one might be, excellent, um, it's my moment of fame. I've been making those YouTube videos for so long now. Finally, some exposure. <laughs> Others of you will think, well, I'm not worried. I never lie. But then again, I don't have any friends because I never lie. 
Others are thinking, where did I put my passport? I need to get a one-way ticket out of this country. Well, keep a note of that reaction because um, we're going to come back to this. Uh, we're going to look at these verses. They're just a few short verses, almost innocuous verses. But we're going to look um, with three perspectives this morning. The intention behind the sermon, the preacher behind the sermon, and the power behind the sermon. See some people taking notes. Intention, preacher, and power. Firstly, the intention behind these verses of the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 33 uh, begins again. Do you have this in front of you? Um, it's in the Bibles. Um, Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. It begins again. And we realize that this is a repeat of a particular type of example that Jesus is using to make an earlier point. He says, you have heard it said, but I say. He's used this kind of illustration three times already by this point in the sermon. You've heard that it was said about anger, about lust, about divorce, but I say to you this. So this follows on from Jesus' teaching on a new kingdom being here with his arrival. He says, what comes with me is a development that's not brand new, but is a continuation from the past. So he says, don't think that I've come to abolish and get rid of the law and get rid of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so this means that he's, one, saying yes to what's gone on before. Two, he's saying that he is the one who will completely and uh, properly embody these laws in himself. And finally, that he's come to fill these laws full. He's come to fulfill them. That is, he's going to draw out the full intention behind the law. He says, you have heard it said, I say to you. So Jesus says this, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. He quotes the drawing together of two of the Ten Commandments. The third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And I think Jesus is critiquing a particular interpretation of the law that the religious leaders had at that time. Let me give some background to this. Today we live in a, in a written culture and not an oral culture as it was then. As a result, most of the way in which we make oaths today is through the signing of documents. And I know that some lawyers are here and they do that every day. Our particular legal system, you sign a contract and then that contract is witnessed, it becomes binding, and then if you don't fulfill it, there are consequences. But in Jesus' time, um, it was an oral culture and public oral promises were more prevalent, more formal. And it won't surprise you um, to hear that people then wanted to have loopholes and uh, wiggle room, uh, even as part of verbal oaths too. So people would say to themselves, you have to keep your oaths to the Lord. Oaths to the Lord. That's important and binding, but oaths to other people, well, there's a bit of wiggle room, I think, there. I'd like to think so. Oaths which mention God, they're important, they're in binding, which include God in the name, but oaths that don't mention God, well, it's obviously not that important not to mention God, so let's not have those ones be binding. And so the swearing of oaths became this kind of complex and uh, unclear way of letting you know what you can get away with and what you can't get away with. It gave power to those who read the law and interpreted the law, but really it was for lying and deception. And so these oaths no longer brought truth, but actually weakened the cause of truth and promoted deceit. In Matthew 23, 
uh, we see how these word games work. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and he says, woe to you because you play with words. If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. That's what people said. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. If anyone swears by the altar, well, that's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, then he is bound by his oath. You see what's going on there? They're using words to kind of manipulate what they are promising and what they're not promising. And so I give you this background to say, swearing and promising different kinds of oaths became justification for lying. And Jesus is going behind the intention and uh, speaking to the people then. You see, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is showing up the stupidity and ineptitude of this kind of reading of the law. Something that is supposed to lead to good, here truth-telling, is twisted and turned and trapped and tripped up and then untwisted again to become something to avoid that good. Jesus wants to show up this kind of mechanistic, clinical, legalistic way of thinking, and he goes to the intention of this. He says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Jesus realizes that people were trying to avoid using the word God so that their oath would not be binding. And so they would take an oath and swear by heaven and earth or Jerusalem or their own heads, and they'd think to themselves, well, I don't need to, to, to do that. It's like when you were young. I don't know if you did that here, but when you said something um, you, and you didn't want to do it, you'd kind of cross your fingers behind your back, right? Do you know that? It's interesting because that's the oral thing as well. Kids don't have written documents yet, right? So they're like, oh, yeah, I'll definitely do that. I'll definitely do that. Or if they really think that they will, it's the pinky promise, isn't it? But for these guys, it was the way that they used the word God in their words. And Jesus says, don't be silly. You can't cut out God from these things. You can't detach God from these promises, however sneakily you try. And so he goes from big to small. Heaven, well, that's the throne of God. Earth is his footrest. To us, earth is massive, but for God, it would be that little bit that is folded out of that lazy boy chair. <laughs> it's his footstool. Jerusalem is God's city. And don't think to swear by your head, you can't even affect the color of your hair. I'm starting to realize that as time goes on. Whatever formula you use to be clever, you can't avoid reference to God. So don't take an oath at all. Don't bother. By these verbal gymnastics, these complex systems of oaths, you're creating different levels of truth. And because of these different levels of truth that you're trying to create, you're undermining oaths, swearing, promises, truthfulness, integrity, words. And these kind of levels and these oaths are from the evil one, he says. Kind of harsh, isn't it, don't you think? But when we look at it, it kind of makes sense because every time we use them, we're inviting evil onto the field. We invite evil to have a seat on the table. It's only because we live in a broken and untruthful world that we need extra assurances of truth. Someone says, as God is my witness, I say this. It's not a sign of godliness, but evidence of the lack of it in this world. No, verse 37 says this, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more comes from evil. 
Literally, let your word yes be yes and your word no be no. Be a person of your word. Be people of our word. Jesus' intention here is to say that there are no levels of, of, of truthfulness, right? They don't exist. We want to do this. Jesus says that doesn't exist. He says, don't swear by heaven, earth, the city, because you can't get out of the presence of God. Not with your verbal gymnastics. He says, don't swear by those things because you can't get out of the presence of God. Everything you say is as binding as if you did it under oath. That's if you say, yes, I'll be there next week at 7 o'clock. Um, that means that you'll be there next week. Not um, if nothing else comes up in the meantime, which is actually going to be more fun than coming to your thing at 7. <laughs> or I'll pray for you. Oh, how many times have I said that? And I'm like, oh, will I? We are to be people of our word because words matter we can't get away from god our words and promises can't be detached from him it says heaven his earth his city my head and every color number on our heads is before god and so there are no levels of truthfulness but truth and lie and if that's true if it's as uh, binary as that then i lie a lot more than i'd like to think i don't know about you Why do I lie? Why do you lie? Why do you have different shades of truth? Why are you not okay with 50 shades of gray of truth, but in certain situations, you're okay with five shades or 15. In some situations, 25 shades of, of, of gray when it comes to the truth. For me, it's to impress people, to show that I belong. That's when I will lie. For others, it's to use people and to manipulate them to get what they want. For others, it's not to disappoint others because they can't stand the slightest hint of rejection. But Jesus is saying to us, there are no levels of truth, no shades. This morning, what do you need to realize is, is your weakness? That place where nine times out of ten, you're going to lie. Is it your comfort? Is it your... Uh, connections? Is it your career? What area do I need to tell you that God sees? And so when you lie anyway, when you know that God sees, actually it just shows you and it's helpful because then it shows you that you care more about that comfort, that connection, that career than you do about what he thinks. And that might be a hard thing to realize, but that's part of awareness. That's part of growing. That's part of realization. I mentioned a camera following you around for a day. Remember how you assessed that 24 hours? I wonder if any of you were genuinely scared. You probably thought, he's new as well. He could be from like CBC or something. <laughs> how would you feel if that had followed you? There's a show called The Office. Has anyone watched The Office? Um, it started in the UK. I just thought I'd just throw that in, right? But I have to say the American one is, is, is excellent. So the premise is this, if you haven't seen it. It's a show pretending to be a documentary about ordinary life in a paper company office. Sounds horrible, but it's actually really very funny. So the characters are followed around by cameras. Sometimes they talk to the camera because it's a documentary, especially Jim, he does that a lot. But most of the time they don't act like the cameras are there. And there's one episode in the last series which is kind of strange because 
they realize that the cameras that have been following them around for the past nine series are actually going to air the documentary on TV. And so it's a bit kind of mind-bending because um, they realize that they're going to be on their TV even though they're already on our TV, right? There's different levels, right? And they all realize that they're going to be on TV. They go from excited to kind of worried. <laughs> some are concerned about how they'll be portrayed. Some worry about the truth that might come out. And there's one character called Angela. Here for the whole nine series is a horrible, holier-than-thou, pseudo-religious character who in this episode realizes that things are going to come out in the wash. Her extramarital relationship with a colleague that she had before and after she marries the state senator is going to be revealed. And that senator's extramarital relationship with another of Angela's colleagues is going to come out too. It's been nine years of her eye-rolling, judgmental comments. And as a viewer, you're kind of delighted that she's going to get what she deserves. It's beyond awkward. It's cringeworthy. It's cringeworthy TV at its finest. But let's turn that camera around. What would nine years of your words on camera feel like? some cringing. One that had recorded every word you'd said, every tone of voice, every denotation and connotation, every consequence of every nuance that you had spoken. This is the intention of the sermon, I think, to get behind our words, to get behind those words, to see the significance of our words as truth. Because there are no levels of truth. There is just truth and untruth. Friends, we are to be uh, people of our word. Next, we need to see the preacher behind the Sermon on the Mount. That was kind of heavy. Okay, bear with me. Okay, we're, we're, we're going places. We're going to go places, right? We need to see this preacher, this identity of the preacher on the Mount. Mount. You've heard it said, but I say to you. Usually, people would quote a higher authority in making their interpretation on Scripture. But, but notice Jesus says, but I say to you. How is he able to know the intention behind the law? How can he not quote a higher authority? I think it's because he's the highest authority. He's able to teach on truth because he is truth. He says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And 1 Peter it said that he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. No lies, no guile, no shades of truth. Jesus is truth incarnate, truth personified, embodied, filled, full. So he's truth. But let me also say this. If this is true, if he's truth, then we need to overcome a misunderstanding of Jesus. I think I've had at various points in my life that Jesus, this misunderstanding that Jesus is, is nice, but not very intelligent. That he doesn't really know like, life as it is, right? Like He doesn't know what it's like to live in like, the 21st century in Vancouver, right? There was a sketch that I watched growing up with a character called Tim, nice but dim. He spoke very slowly and he was nice, but he was a bit dim. <laughs> Tim, nice but dim. I think we see Jesus as that. Jesus, nice but a little dim. Dallas Willard is, is great on this. He says, this Jesus, nice but dim misunderstanding is the death knell of discipleship but it locates him outside the company of those who have knowledge and therefore deprives us of the practical power of his teachings. 
If you play a game of word association today in almost any setting, you will collect some familiar names around words such as smart, knowledgeable, intelligent, and so forth. Einstein, Bill Gates, the obligatory rocket scientists, you know, those guys. They'll stand out, but one person who certainly will not in this connection is Jesus. But that view is devastating for discipleship because would anyone in their right mind trust their life to someone who is nice but dim? You might get them to water your garden, but you're not going to talk to them about buying a house, all right? Friends, Jesus is, is brilliant. Not nice, not, not, not just nice and dim, but this man lived in poverty and was reared in obscurity. He did not travel extensively. Only once did he cross the boundary of the country in which he lived, and that was during his exile in childhood. He possessed neither wealth nor influence. His relatives were inconspicuous and had neither training nor formal education, but, I should say, and he never wrote a book, and yet perhaps all the libraries of the world could not hold the books that have been written about him. Philosophers have come and go. More is written about this person than anyone else. What would change in your life if someone said to you, Jesus is the smartest person who's ever lived? Not just with his superhuman God powers, right? But in his humanity, he was brilliant. I think I would begin to, to trust him a bit more. I would start to really believe what he says. I wouldn't think that he wasn't streetwise enough or, under, able to, or unable to understand how life really is. I think if we realize this, we might see that he knows what he's talking about. He really knows what he's talking about. Not like scientists who said that salt and butter were bad for you 20 years ago. But now they say it's fine and that sugar is the big issue and they've just made me miss out on 20 years of buttery goodness of my life. <laughs> what? No, Jesus isn't like that. Jesus, when he says, do not murder, do not lust, do not lie, it's less like don't eat butter, but more like don't breathe underwater. Okay? Don't try and cheat gravity. It's not an opinion, a suggestion, or a life hack. It's a design. You can't breathe underwater and live. These things literally don't work as you hope. And he's telling us. He says, trust me, I know. I'm the smartest person around. If you're not people of your word, if we are not, truth erodes in us. Something dies in us. I think we can see in our society what happens when we bend the truth, when we have white lies and half-truths. Whether it's leaders in, in Canada, in America, the UK, Africa, China, Hong Kong, saying one thing and then doing another, the consequences are serious. I think you, I don't need to convince you of that. Truth, trust is lost. People are used, structures exist to dehumanize. I wonder how much of what we're seeing in today's culture is a result of the spirit of the age when I was first learning to play guitar in the late 90s. The first ever song that I learned to play was Whatever by a band called Oasis who are from Manchester. I'm free to be whatever I, whatever I choose and I'll sing the blues if I want. I'm free to say whatever I, whatever I like if it's wrong or right, it's all right. Isn't it weird how Brits when they sing sound kind of North American? That is so weird. I don't know the answer to that. I don't know why that is. Anyway, that last line, I, that was not in my script. I'm free to say whatever I, whatever I like, if it's wrong or right, it's all right. 
That's why I learned to play guitar too. Is it all right? Is it? The consequences are serious for society. I think they're serious for us as well. It's been claimed that truthfulness is a fragile issue, a fragile tissue, I should say, that keeps our humanity together inside us. And I think there's something there. Notice how Jesus says, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more of this comes from evil. So if I make, if I tell a lie or shade the truth, it is of evil, or more scarily, of the evil one. That's more than a bit scary. It's terrifying. But I think it allows us to bring out another side to this. When we are people of our word, when our yes means yes, our no means you, then this is good. It is of God. It brings the spirit to the table, not evil. It reflects Jesus Christ. We are to be people of our word because truth reflects Jesus Christ. It reflects the preacher in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus Christ. Every time your yes is yes, your no is no, you become more like him. You are at your most fully human when you do that. When you make a promise to your child or, or to your wife or to your husband or your best friend or your parents, when something you've promised, you, you do. Maybe there aren't many more things that make us more like God. Trust the preacher behind the sermon. He's brilliant. He knows what he's talking about. Be a person of your word because truth reflects Jesus Christ. And so finally, the power behind the sermon. It'd be a big mistake if I were to leave here and just kind of go home now. I think we'd feel kind of crushed. It'd be a big mistake to see Jesus here in this sermon as only giving laws. If they're only laws, then they are laws that will prove to be impossible to keep. Trying to keep the law has been described as trying to make an apple tree bear peaches by tying peaches to its branches. Right? It doesn't work. Moralism won't work. We need new hearts. We need a new source. We need a new power. The Sermon on the Mount gives distinct perspectives on what life in the kingdom is to look like. It describes kingdom life how those alive in the kingdom can live now on their way to a full world of God. And you know what? The amazing thing is this, that God wants to see that happen to you, to me, to you guys in the back row. God cares about every single yes and no that, that, that you and I say today. He cares about the completing of promises from the past. He cares about the promises that you're going to make tomorrow. He cares about your word because truth reflects him. He cares about um, your word because he loves you too much to leave you as you are. He loves you so much that every word counts, every word matters, because who you are being matters to him. Really matters to him. He wants to transform you from the inside out so that you're at home in his family and so that you're fit for his kingdom. C.S. Lewis says this, the command, be ye perfect, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, is not idealistic gas, nor is it a command to do the impossible. He is going to make us into creatures that can obey that command. Would you trust that this morning? That he wants to do that in you? He cares about you too much to leave you actually as you are? You kind of want to stay as you are, right? It feels comfortable, it feels safe. It's kind of like, oh, but I kind of know what this feels like. What if he has got a bigger picture for you? You know what? He makes 
this happen because he wants this so much. This is why the preacher of the Sermon on, of the Mount came. He didn't want the sermon just to be idealistic or legalistic, but Jesus comes and gives us a Sermon on the Mount, but he doesn't stand off and they then say to us, okay, go for it. Go on then. Let's see you do it. He gives it to us, but then he lives it. So as we trust in him, as we see him, our hearts begin little by little to change. We begin to experience more of his power. Truth incarnate comes. He takes the law given by God to God's people through Moses and he fulfills it by living it perfectly. And he's kind of killed for living it perfectly. As Jesus is before a puppet court at the end of his earthly life, he's brought before the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. And Matthew 26 says this. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, false testimony, that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus answers. And I think that's why he's not getting rid of all promises or oaths, but it's just those kind of deceptive ones that he's speaking about. Because Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. He lives the life that, that we should have lived. And he dies the death that we deserved to have died. Truth incarnate dies a, a liar's death at the hands of false claims. He fulfills so that we can exceed. He fulfills a law we should have kept but couldn't so that as we admit our dishonesty, as we come in our brokenness, as we acknowledge our lack of truthfulness, as we put our trust in him and his power, his exceeding righteousness is given to us. A whole person righteousness begins to flow out of our heart through the power of his spirit. We are so then united to him that the father looks on us and says, this is my son, this is my daughter who I love, with whom I'm well pleased. Despite the lie yesterday, despite the, 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 the white lie this morning, as we begin to be changed by him, as we entrust ourselves to him, as we attend to the right movements of our hearts, we experience the kingdom of God in our lives so that we become people of our word because truth reflects Jesus Christ in us and to the world. So here are some practical things to do. I'm almost done. Confess the power of lies in, in your own life. Admit dishonesty. Admit the power in which it's held you there are lies that we say to ourselves. I mean, how crazy is that, right? Realize how you shade your words for your own end. Be aware of the different levels of truth you're trying to, to, to bring in. Secondly, remember the person behind these words, truth incarnate. Pray for trust in him. Pray to see the ways in which you need to see that he knows what he's saying to you. Thirdly, realize he's after your heart. He doesn't just want to rearrange a few things here and there. He wants to completely renovate. 
and he has the power to do that. I want to encourage you to do that, to kind of inspire you to do that. Lewis Smead says this, the only way to overcome the unpredictability of your future is the power of promising. If forgiving is the only remedy for your painful past, promising is the only remedy for your uncertain future. Isn't that powerful? The promises that we make actually do something to affect our, our future. And as we do these things, my prayer is that we'll all see that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. All the promises of God are yes in this truth incarnate. Let me close with a quick story. My friend in recovery made a, a massive step after a relapse when he shared with me about something that he had been processing from his childhood and he just needed to speak about it. From the age of six, my friend had spent years in care, waiting at the front door of, of care homes, of foster homes, of places where he'd live, usually on the stairs. People always found it strange why he'd be there for hours and hours and hours, waiting, seemingly silent. He told me that after the last massive fight he saw between his parents, and as they were being taken away by the police, his dad took him to one side and said to him, I'll come back for you, I promise. I'll come back for you, I'll promise. Looked him square in the eye and said that. But that was the last time he ever saw him. He's not seen his parents ever since. That was the last time his younger brother and his younger sister had ever seen his parents. He realized that he couldn't kind of trust anyone after that. He couldn't trust anyone after that. He couldn't believe promises meant nothing to him anymore. And something had died in him. But praise God, in Christ, something is coming to life again in him. He's beginning to see that maybe there is another way. That Jesus Christ really is the yes to all the promises of God. He's not going to be like the promises of his dad. But all the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. He's beginning to trust that. And I hope that we're able to do that just a step more this morning. May we learn as we become people of our word, we reflect truth, we reflect Jesus Christ in us and to this world as well.